Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Queen Maca Sessions. I'm your host today, Remington Ross, and with me today is producer, songwriter, bassist, and CEO of Trackstar Entertainment, Joe Scandapre. Welcome, and Hello. how are you today? Good. I'm good. Well, your intro was quite a mouthful for me. Uh, you have done so much. I really don't know where to begin, but since we are recording from the music department, I find it fitting we start with your name, because it's similar to a French Renaissance composer we often study here. Any relation or story there? <laughs> um, my dad was a big fan of classical music, and I was born in a classical music environment in France, and he thought it would be really funny just to name me like that, because Debre was our last name, and... Um, Next thing you know, I become a musician, and now the pressure is on, you know. Yeah. And um, and it's been kind of an interesting thing because in the 80s in the media when I was up and coming, they would always make that reference. And then it got very confusing when I was writing books on Bach because yeah. Bach was after Josquin Depre, and everybody was getting confused. <laughs> now, when you search your name, it comes up quite a lot. Yeah, it's uh, but it, finally on Wikipedia they got it right. They separated it. Yeah, yeah. You know. And uh, what age did you start beginning your musical journey then? Well, I started playing violin when I was probably eight, and um, that didn't last. I had very little interest, and it was way too hard. And you know, because of the music that was popular at the time, I wanted to play guitar, of course. And um, so by twelve. My brother had a band, and they needed a bass player, so I started playing bass on a guitar that had only four strings. Yeah. And uh, that's how it got started. And a year later, I had a bass that my mom bought for, I think, $20. And it was horrible, but I played the crap out of it. <laughs> and what were some of your uh, early musical influences growing up in France, besides the classical well, growing up in France, there was a lot of pop, and in the south of France, there was a lot of gypsy music, like Gypsy Kings, um, who whose parents were very popular. Um, you know, Gypsy Kings is two families, you know, and their parents were a very popular duo. And um, so there was that, and of course, there was the whole British invasion in the 60s in France. So that's my first musical influence as far as a bass player was... Led Zeppelin 1, the first album, Cream, John Mayall, basically the blues rock music, that, but with the British, you know, vision of it. I was not, you know, aware of American blues, even though I had grown up in Brooklyn as a kid until I was five. I was born in France, but my parents moved to New York. Um, I, I became aware of American blues through British artists. And then you got your first record deal in France, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> what happened, um, a mutual friend of my brother um, had a band, and uh, they, they, they had had a major hit um, in the early 70s, and uh, they needed a bass player. And at the time, I had moved to San Diego with my parents. It was This was like 1973. I'm really dating myself. Um <laughs> And um, I heard they were looking for a bass player, so I sold everything I had in San Diego, and I flew over, and by 19 years old, I had a deal with United Artists. So that was definitely an amazing journey. Uh, that sounds like it. And um, 
How'd you start working with Bernie Turpin? Oh, Toppin. Toppin, I mean. Uh, that jumps far ahead. This was in the 80s. We had a mutual friend um, at a studio. It's kind of a long story. There's a particular studio in Englewood where I used to hang out, and that was owned by a friend of mine. And this is where all the early NWA records were done. And um, a mutual friend was Bernie Toppin and also Jerry Heller, who launched NWA. Yeah. And uh, Jerry, a lot of people don't know this, had launched um, Elton John in the U.S. in the early 70s. And I believe Journey, too. Yeah, Journey. Journey. Um, I mean, it's faster to say who Jerry did not work with, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, everybody, Credence, Clearwater, uh, Journey, Van Morrison, Elton John, Pink Floyd, you know. Huge list. But anyway, um, around 86, I was at uh, this studio, and um, Bernie Toppin heard a demo that I had produced, and he asked my friend if he could have my info, and that's how I ended up um, producing stuff for him. And three, four years later, I we started co-writing, which was pretty amazing, actually. And does that yeah. still influence you today, pretty much? Um, yeah, actually, because... It had. It was a complete different approach to writing. Um, usually, I would write a song playing guitar, or you know, my limited piano skills, and come up with a melody. In this particular case, it was the exact opposite. Like he does with Elton John, he would write the words first, and he had the whole story, and then you had to write the song to the words, which was kind of writing a movie soundtrack, you know. Yeah. Which was, you know, helped me in anything because I do, you know, movie music now and TV. So it was easy to write to a story, you know. Well, at first it was – I think it took me six months to even come up with something on the first lyrics he gave me. And then once I got the hang of it, you know, and once I knew that he liked it, that was very important, you know. I mean, there was – it was a – you know, kind of a little bit of a pressure situation yeah. <laughs> to rise to the occasion. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. After Elton John and and probably 50 top 10 hits, you know. <laughs> so what made you start writing uh, bass instructional books? So around 87, 88, I had kind of stopped playing bass. Well, not stopped, but really you know, slowed down because I was looking at making a living and I was producing records in L.A. And I had a publishing deal with EMI Publishing as a songwriter. So I decided I should write. Well, actually, I was giving bass lessons. And one of my students, um, I would write all these exercises for him. And he told me, why don't you turn that into a book? which I did, and that book became Bass Fitness. And I went to um, the NAMM show, and I went to the people at Hal Leonard Publishing and pitched it, and they decided to put it out. And none of us knew that it would be the best-selling book in the history of yeah. bass. <laughs> no, it is the best-selling instructional bass book of all I, time. and It still amazes everybody. Yeah. And then tell us about uh, Trackstar Studios and entertainment. Okay, Trackstar Studios is a studio. I have to do this in a chronological order. Okay. Um, I was, you know, I was a writer at Warner Chapel Publishing between 1990 and 93. And then I came down to San Diego after my deal was up at Warner. 
And um, I started working for a label in town called Cargo, Cargo Records. And um, one of Cargo's big signing was Blink-182. And um, so the owner was a friend, and we created a sub-label where we signed a variety of acoustic acts. And um, as a producer, I would get paid to produce the records, but I would pay all the fees to recording studios. And then I decided I can build my own studio and I can still collect the producer's fee and the studio fee. So that's how I built Trackstar on University Avenue. And um, um, basically, originally, it was mainly to do Cargo Records projects. And then after Cargo closed, um, I just kept rolling as Trackstar Studios. Trackstar Entertainment came later when I decided to get into television music around 2002, um, and we became a publishing company. And what made you decide to make that change? Really simple. Records were not selling anymore. The Internet, Napster. Um, I had to find a way to sell music without it being stolen. And so through you know a couple of, you know, I looked into different things and different aspects of how we could sell music. I would walk around SeaWorld, and I'd hear music. I would walk around, and I'm going, there's music everywhere. Somebody has to be writing it. Yeah, somebody's so, getting paid. Exactly. <laughs> so we decided, basically, me and a, another friend, we decided to um, basically create our own publishing company and to go after all these um, music supervisors and, and different library companies. And that's how we ended up in you know enormous amount of shows, more than I can count. <laughs> And can you explain some of that process? Like you've written for uh, Pawn Stars, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, Catfish. Um, do you write with the show in mind or is it something you already have? Do you pitch to them? So um, Catfish was actually kind of a cool project. Um, MTV sent me the movie Catfish because it was derived from a movie. I had never heard of the movie, and uh, but I heard it was a pretty underground, you know, pretty known underground documentary. So I watched the movie and – the guy from Devo uh, had written the music. I forget his name. Mark. Mark that something. guy. Yeah. That name that I can't pronounce. <laughs> Mother's Bow or something like that. Yeah. So anyway, so I was really intrigued by it. And so I took on the job. And uh, yes, it was based on the mystery of episodes. They wanted, you know, eerie kind of um, cues. And, um, you know, they wanted basically – you know, suspense, suspense music. So we ended up, I think we did five or six seasons, and um, they're still rerunning them, and I think they're still doing Catfish. I'm not sure. I stopped working for MTV about three years ago. Yeah. But we had done, um, we did Cribs, we did Pimp My Ride, we did True Life, we did The Hills, we did uh, many of their shows since 2004, I think. And you work a lot with uh, music libraries. Can can you kind of explain some of that to the listeners? So yeah, music library. It's um, it's kind of a double edged sword. It's really good in a way to get in and have your music played, but the other side of it is you don't collect royalties. It's royalty free. So what you do, you'll create a collection, let's say, of ten tunes, just like an album, and some of them instrumental, or if you're going to have vocals, they want the instrumental versions, and they call that a collection. And um, they 
fit those with all kinds of keywords and metadata and all that so that music supervisors around the world can find your tune to put in their show. The problem with music libraries is the bigger ones that do very well have 300,000 songs, which makes it a very small odd that your song is going to be picked. Um, However, the cool thing for us, we came in at the very beginning of music libraries around 2001, and we did a big collection in a variety of uh, for a variety of companies. So at first we were getting quite a few royalties, and then of course now everybody's doing it. So, <laughs> but so the the downside of the music library is it's royalty free, but they can license your tune for a pretty you know. Um, you know, I think it's like $50 to license a tune from a music library as opposed to if we take a song to a music supervisor for, let's say, uh, Anthony Bourdain show, they're going to pay two or $3,000 for that, you know. But, of course, it's a lot harder to get in unless you know the music supervisors. And then some of these libraries, they're picking and assembling from different um, artists, correct? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's it's just a, you know, I try to avoid doing it now. I don't know many of my writers who want to do libraries because, luckily for us, we kind of graduated above that. So are you going back to more of the live recording or no 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 we're we're going we're we're doing music like for example right now we're working on Miss Universe, um, so we're doing world music. We're, I think today's Thailand, you know. Yeah. Um, and we're building tracks, you know, for a different country. So we basically the the best thing to do is to be able and be in a position where you can custom write. Um, that's what we've done for Ellen DeGeneres. They ask us she'll produce a show, other than her radio, you know, her live TV show. You know, yeah. People think that's all she does, but she has a production company that produces a lot of shows. Um, so we'll write, they'll ask us, they'll call us on Monday or I probably have, you know, messages and they go, we need a song about this, about that, and we need it to sound kind of like this. They give us some instructions and the turnaround time is very important. Um, usually we'll turn it around in 24 to 36 hours, completely produced, sang with all the parts. That, that, take some skill right there that is well and and it takes organization exactly because they want it right away because they're editing on friday for the monday airing you know and so so it's a lot of people will come to me and they go i wrote this song about that and uh, i need to record it do you and by the and they'll bring me a listing they saw of somebody looking for a song and it's from march you know (laughs) and i'm going that show is long in syndication now you know (laughs) And most of these libraries, they become the actual track, or are they more of like a template track? What, what do you mean? Oh, like, um, like a template track, like an ideal of the song, or is it like no, the final no, product? No, 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 it's final product. Wow. Everything we do is final product, you know. That, that is something. So, and you have accomplished so much. I mean, what, what are you going to work on next, and what's next for <clears throat> what, what I'm working on next, that's a good um, – I have a new company – called Jonah Music Group, and it's me and Michael Natter. And uh, to give you an idea, Michael Natter is a songwriter, uh, co-wrote many, many songs with Jason Mraz. Um, he wrote, co-wrote I Won't Give Up, 
um, which was a four times platinum. Yeah. And so we have this new company. We're working with Jason Mraz on some material. We're working with a lot of the idols uh, finalist, um, Alex Kinsey, who was on the X Factor, who won X Factor. And we basically write songs for them and collaborate with them and try to place them in TV shows. But this time we're doing it with known artists, you know. Yeah. That is amazing. So that's a new thing. Um, but, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of a constant motion kind of person. Um, I get – every morning I wake up and I'm looking for what's new. So I have a list. I mean we're working on television show right now that would involve food and music. Uh, we're talking to Cox. We've been talking to them for about six months. And they're very into filming it and airing it to about four million people on their different markets and uh, possibly graduate to the Travel Channel, you know. So we're working different areas, and I'm starting a fashion line too, you know. Wow. So um, that includes bass players, you know, bass players, guitar players, kind of a high-end. You know, so many musicians go on stage and look terrible, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so if we can make it simple and affordable. <laughs> now, you've always found a way to uh, find a small niche throughout the decades, and that's one of the things I really uh... – Admired about you. Oh, thank for years. you. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of that uh, people don't realize. Um, I mean, it's great, but a lot of that is survival. You know, when you, I mean, if I go back to the eighties, mid eighties, I was making a living only playing bass, and I just didn't see how that was going to work. You know, and um, by the time I bought my first house, after I got my deal with EMI, I had to keep going to be able. You know, to feed this habit we have called food, you know, yeah. eating and lodging, you know. So it's kind of a little, little necessity and a little yeah, survival. exactly. So yeah. so there's a lot of that. And there's the fact that I'm always interested in something new. And I, I'm not the kind of person, I don't listen to old music. I never listen to classic rock. I have no, you know, interest in it. Um, even though I'm from that generation, I already heard Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. I don't need to hear it again. Yeah. You know, I'm more interested in the new Nicki Minaj song, you know. Um, and I'd like to move forward all the time, you know. A little bit of adaption yeah. then. Yeah. Do you ever miss playing out live now that you're behind the production I Actually, I do. You know, yeah. I do. I have a band called Gypsy Fiesta where I play, uh, you know, Gypsy Flamenco. And, uh, but we play live, but it's pri- private shows. Yeah, you know, private shows. So I, I play out live, you know, about twice a month. But I plan to start doing that again. I need to relearn how to play now. <laughs> yeah, knock off a little bit of the rust. Exactly. So, uh, what advice would you give to people just starting off in the music industry? <sighs> wow, it's so different. Besides, now. run. <laughs> well, it's it's so different now than it was when I started. Because when I started, you know, I got signed with United Artists. I got in a band. We played anything we wanted. People liked it. And we got a record deal. And we were getting paid to go around the world playing our music. You know, um, when I moved here, I started a band called Stress uh, with Jimmy Crespo, who had just left Aerosmith. And that was another you know, situation that was great and all that. Nowadays, I think the the key thing now is to get a lot of social media views. And ultimately, I think a good way to break in is to get a song in a TV show or a movie. I mean, 
many artists broke through Grey's Anatomy or, um, you know, shows on HBO, Showtime, big, you know. So yeah. if you can get in, and it's really simple. Find the name of the music supervisors. Make sure you have the material that is really good and well-recorded. You know, um, a lot of people think it's well-recorded. If it doesn't compare to the latest Lady Gaga or Tom Petty song that was recorded for 50 grand or 100 grand, then it's not going to cut it. You know, a lot of people, everybody has Pro Tools, you know, but not everybody knows how to use it. Um, I tell people I have a basketball, but I can't join the Lakers. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. Well, I just really want to thank you for our time here again. Um, Fortunately, we're coming up to an end of today's Quimaca session, but I just want to remind everybody of some of our other episodes. Um, We have guests such as Jake from Manakee Valley Records, James Pogo from Band Rant, um, my Quimaca College rock, pop, and soul bandmate Alex Lovanos, who is very talented up and coming here. You can look for him at Soma and the Stats. And also we have an episode with uh, Rika Parker and Joe Scan. You know Rika, right? Yeah, yeah. She's worked in my studio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she's, I knew her from 10 years ago at least. No, she's a yeah. great talent. So be able yeah. to be sure to check out those episodes of Queen Macca. And thank you once again to our guest, Joe Scan. And thank you for listening. And until next time, uh, peace, love, and trombone grease, everybody. Cool. <laughs>